So about 15 years ago, I had just begun a new job, and the first order of business was to hire a new assistant. And so I posted the position and right away had three interviews on my calendar. As you might expect, the interviewees all arrived, uh, each um, at the appointed time, dressed professionally, smiles on their faces, upbeat, hoping to be chosen for the job that we had available. Uh, when their time came, I invited them into my office. We did the friendly greeting, shaking hands, little chit-chat, and then sat down. Um, I explained what would happen during the interview process and then began the formal interview. Now, I've conducted lots of interviews in my career, and I always feel like it's a good thing to do to start with a really simple kind of a softball question, something that takes all the pressure out of the room, opens up the conversation, and puts the person at ease. So I landed on this question that I thought would be the perfect softball question, and here it was. The question was, to get started, tell me what's going on in your life right now. <laughs> So, as Albert Einstein once said, wisdom comes to experience, and experience comes from making bad decisions. Um, the first candidate came in, we went through the formalities, sat down, and I asked my question, so tell me, what's going on in your life right now? Almost immediately, the interviewee burst into tears and started to share with me the unhappy list of events that had occurred in their life to bring them to the point of needing a job, um, and even failed personal relationships along the way. The second interviewee <laughs> was kind of the same, began much like the first, warm introduction, sat down, tell me, what is going on in your life right now? Tears started to well up in their eyes, and the story, uh, the backstory of what brought them to be needing a job was one that was heart-wrenching. Um, not learning from experience quite yet. Uh, began the third interview the same, smiles, handshakes, cheerful welcome, uh, and the question, so tell me, what's going on in your life right now? And for a third time, the interviewer burst into tears and, uh, and outpoured another tragic account of what had led up to them being there that morning. So what wisdom did I gain from that series of interviews? Perhaps three simple truths. One is, first, never ask an unemployed person what's going on in their life right now. <laughs> They've got too much time to think about it, and none of it's positive. Um, second, when people are standing in front of you, it's very hard to tell on the surface what's behind the veneer of dress and smile and appearance and uh, it's very hard to see what's going on in people's lives and the circumstances uh, that surround uh, what you see on the outside. And third, and probably the most uh, important, is that one of the most and probably the most powerful force in the universe, other than the Holy Spirit, is necessity. Is necessity. It drives nearly everything that we do, everything that we say, every thought that comes into our head. If I were to ask you this morning to tell me what is going on in your life right now, how would you respond? Would it bring tears to your eyes? Would an avalanche of fear and uncertainty 
come immediately into view? Would the face of an enemy appear? Would the burning humiliation of a professional failure? Would the sting of a financial loss? Is there a need in your life that is bringing you to your knees, begging for mercy? If so, I hope that you've come to the right place this morning and that the gospel is clear. But before we get to the gospel, the 20th century psychologist Abraham Maslow considered the potency of necessity of our phys- uh, psychological health on our psychological health and considered that it was not far and it was not far from the truth regarding the power of necessity when he published a paper on human motivation theory in 1943 the output of which we know as Maslow's hierarchy of needs according to Maslow we share basic needs for physical safety and welfare needs for self-esteem, and a need for self-actualization, which is a need to reach our highest potential. And that while theoretically possible, by observation it's only ever reached, self-actualization is only ever reached by 2% of people. I may be taken for task for a flawed oversimplification, but In my naive understanding of what I've read in preparation for this sermon, Maslow later postulated in a paper published after his death in 1971 titled The Farther Reaches of Human Nature that there may yet exist in in a psychological realm of motivations, a transcendence, something beyond the satisfaction of basic needs, esteem needs and the accumulation of peak psychological experiences of love and beauty and harmony and fulfillment that lead to the border on the spiritual or the altruistic. I think it's probably why Maslow's sort of fallen out of favor with psychologists for the most part because they don't go in the realm of the mystical or the spiritual. Maslow was sort of suggesting that there's something beyond all this self-actualization stuff that's out there beyond us um, to continue to strive for. Well, how do we attain this transcendence? According to Maslow, if we just strive for it and can climb the ladder of needs and model the right behaviors and collect the positive peak experiences, and reach self-actualization, perhaps with a little more striving we can unaided cultivate an objective understanding of the needs along the way. Understand the disappointments and the injustice and the hatred and the weakness and the dependency and and persevere and remain happy through even difficult times. And reach the higher goals built on higher motives such as living for the benefit of others. And maybe in a rare instance, we can attain a transcendence that will will remain lifelike even after our death, like Thomas Jefferson, or Dr. Martin Luther King, or Mother Teresa, or maybe even Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whose thoughts and ideas echo with life, even though they're dead.
Maslow is not the first and will not be the last to observe human behavior and assert that reaching our highest potential begins with comparison and ends with striving to move up the scale and finish on top. From Protagoras in the 5th century BC, who aptly stated that man is the measure of all things, to Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, to Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, to Tony Robbins' Awaken the Giant Within, to Joel Osteen's Your Best Life Now, these evangelists of self-improvement and prosperity stay at the top of the bestseller list, feeding the culture just what it wants. Compare yourself to others and strive to get ahead, and things are going to work out just fine. Just like Maslow, they all reach into the toolbox in response to need and pull out a measuring stick and hand it to you and tell you to go out and start comparing yourself to others, choose to be happy, fix your mindset, change your behavior, and you will get ahead of those around you. How can we escape this culture that we're in? The culture of comparison that exhorts us to work harder, do more, and be better, and then things are going to work out just fine. How do we ever get off the merry-go-round of relentless comparing and striving in the hope of reaching the next level of the slope of self-actualization, only to wind up right back where we started, tearfully, knowing our necessity, and starting over? In this morning's gospel, Jesus and the disciples have come a long way. From the beginning of the gospel, Matthew has been revealing to the disciples that Jesus is the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. In the previous chapters, they've seen everything that he's done. They've heard everything that he has said. At the transfiguration, which occurred back in, in uh, two chapters before, They've seen Jesus, face radiant like the sun, clothes white as light, talking with Moses and Elijah. And they've heard the voice of God say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. They've come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, passed through Galilee, and are now entering into Judea, just beyond the Jordan. It's the last chapter of the gospel before Jesus' triumphal entry and the cross is starting to come into view. As you would expect along the way, the disciples are asking questions, important questions, the really important questions like, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? How many times will my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? What about me, Lord? We've left everything to follow you. What then will we have? It's the same old refrain. What about me, Lord? What about my needs? Who's going to be first? What's in it for me? Shouldn't there be a quid pro quo? I've done this for you. When am I going to get something in return? 
I've said it before, and it bears repeating, that in our hearts, we don't want a God who loves us. We want a God who owes us. We want to be able to measure our works and get a return on our investment of time and effort. We want God to reward us on the basis of what we've done in comparison to those around us. So I was being a little facetious. Those aren't the most important questions. Those are just the questions the disciples ask. Because disciples, just like us, when times are difficult, we look at the circumstances of our life, we look at the circumstances of the lives of people around us, we, we really only focus on the people who are above us uh, and think how much we envy uh, what they've got or jealous of what they have. Um, we draw some comfort from the people who are below us whose circumstances are more miserable than ours. Jesus uh, responds gently, Everyone who has left house, or brother, or sister, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, really anything of value, for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are last will be first, and the first will be last. If you lose for my name's sake, you will receive an incomprehensible amount in return and eternal life. How can you even begin to understand? You gave up a ratty little fishing boat. You're going to get a hundred boats or something like it. Something incomprehensibly huge. And you're going to inherit eternal life as a bonus. But there's one thing that's required. You have to let go of the measuring stick. Because the last are going to be first and the first are going to be last. All that measuring is turned upside down. Think of it this way. Imagine Jesus is, uh, is reaching out with the parable and grabbing Maslow's stick out of Peter's hand, breaking it across his knee and throwing it on the ground. Then he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a pointed weight on the end of a string and puts it in front of Peter's face and says, now look at this. Now look at that. There's one right here on the, on the lectern. A plumb bob. Stop measuring with a stick and start measuring with this. Jesus makes his point clearly in the parable of the workers in the vineyard. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for the vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. This would have been very familiar to the people at that time. You know, there's actually circumstances like this here in Charlotte where people will go in the morning, they'll stand and wait for people to come around and pick them up to give them work for the day so that they can afford to buy the necessities of life, the basic necessities of food and shelter and clothing. It's a daily routine among a class of unskilled people who live hand to mouth, day by day, hoping for an opportunity to meet their basic needs. Every day they show up, it pays to be early, it pays to look fit, it pays to be friendly, it pays to look capable. Work begins at 6 and goes to 6 with breaks for lunch and maybe a few other breaks during the day. 
For those who were chosen, the workers agree for the master to work for the master for the customary amount of one denarius, which is equal to one day's sustenance. The legal requirement for unskilled labor. And the master puts them to work. Allegorically, there's no question that we are to interpret this parable as having something to do with the nature of God and how things work in the heavenly kingdom and find our place in the story. The message that the kingdom of heaven is like a master hiring unskilled labor to do work all day in the heat of the sun for subsistence wages is not a very compelling recruitment message. But at this point, justice is on track and there are no surprises. In verse 3, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. And going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth, he did the same. If the first hour is six o'clock in the morning, the third hour is nine o'clock in the morning, the sixth hour is noon, and the, third, and the ninth hour is three o'clock. Introducing a sense of urgency, the parable in the parable, the master goes out again and again and finds workers still standing around in need. They still, same group of people, same basic needs. It's all they need, but they don't have the time to meet them. They don't have enough hours in the day to earn a denarius. So some are going to go hungry to varying degrees. Here the parable introduces two dilemmas. These two dilemmas. Time is running out. The time available to trade time for money to earn what you need is running out. There's not enough. There's a growing urgency about the opportunity to work and now only a few hours remain. And also the terms are beginning to change. There's no legal agreement. There's just a commitment on the part of the master to do what is right. Like literally, what is righteous. The master will pay him what's right. The expectation at this time is that needs will go unmet, even by those who agree to go to work later. Perhaps surprised that workers would go into the field without an agreement, those who are listening pull out their measuring sticks and go to work. Those who produce the most, you get the most. You get what you earn. If you slept in, didn't have a bus fare, missed the light rail, had a sick kid at home, got stuck in traffic, too bad. Too bad. People who produce less or work less, regardless of the circumstance, should get less. And will have to make do on less. Old people, people with disabilities, women, children, would have had time, difficult time securing labor. If you're incapable of working, obviously weak or in some way disabled, if you're a widow, then it's probably the fact that you've done something and God's punishing you. So you're getting your justice by not getting a full day's wages. How much is three quarters of a denarius? denarius? How much do they deserve? Verse 6, about the eleventh hour they went out and found others standing and, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, 
because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Finally, the master, he's coming at the 11th hour. Workday ends at 6, he's there at 5 o'clock. There's only one hour left to work. The hearers know what kind of work, uh, what, what, kind, uh, what time the, the workers got hired and what they should earn. Like the last to be picked on a team, they assume that uh, with reasonable conjecture that those who have been picked last are probably lame or infirm or old or weak or lazy or just didn't show up on time all day. But the parable doesn't say that. The parable says, why do you stand here all day? They were there at the beginning of the day. They were there with the same need as the others who were chosen. They stood there through the heat of the day without being chosen. Jesus confronts the measuring stick assumptions and the conjecture of the hearers. Because no one has hired us. And also, with no mention of wages, the master says, go into the vineyard too. There are no promises, there are no commitments, there are no expectations. There's just uh, confusion, uncertainty. That's what parables do. They bring us to a place of sort of, you know, messing with our expectations. And that's when they start to work. Notice finally that these last workers, they just, they just go. They just go. In verse 8, And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to, the, to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. The last will be first, the first will be last. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. At the twelfth hour of the day was done, the master called the laborers to receive their pay, and he paid them in reverse order. Customarily, those who worked the longest got in line first. He paid the workers who only worked an hour the same amount as those who worked all day. By comparison, if the laborers, if, if the laborers who worked only one hour got paid one denarius, justice would suggest that those who worked longer should get more. But they didn't. They got the same. They weren't particularly happy about it. In verse 11, on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us. You have borne the burden of the, we have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. In the parable, the first laborers chose to speak for those with measuring sticks, grumbling to the master about fairness. This is not fair. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? If not the ones who give up the most and work the hardest. Listening to the parable in, the, in this way that comes naturally to us, um, we can easily empathize with those who are picked first. We would feel that way. We would absolutely feel that way. We feel that we're good people, and by comparison, we think God ought to reward us when we're good. 
Thinks we think that God ought to punish others who are bad. Bad things shouldn't happen to good people. We are surprised when bad things happen to us, when we look around and see so many people around us so much more deserving of punishment not getting it when we think we are. We look around and grumble with envy when we see people who seem less deserving, effortlessly advancing while we struggle away. We pray and ask God to answer our prayers in accordance to what we hope for, and when God doesn't respond as we hope, we're surprised. Why, God? What have I done? Why have you turned against me? That's not fair. So I find uh, perhaps a hidden irony in the parable. Jesus is telling the story to the disciples and others, perhaps in the middle of the day. He's holding up a comparison of people living at the lowest rung on the economic ladder and causing his hearers to choose between working all day for a subsistence wage is fair or whether working for a short period of time, leaving people in necessity is fair. Leaving people with a minimum that is insufficient to fill their stomach, provide them with any comfort, any safety. Jesus exposes through the parable the tyrant in all of us that we who are not in that circumstance would, would judge between the one who works all day for one denarius and one who works for an hour and gets one denarius, neither one able to do more than provide for basic needs. Jesus says about parables that those who are on the outside listen but don't hear, see but don't understand. Otherwise, they would turn and be forgiven. The question for us is, do we want to be found among the grumblers who at the end of the day get what they deserve for the day and toil in the sun and go bitter away? Or do we want to find ourselves among those who at the ninth hour come to the master with an insurmountable need, no expectation of meeting needs fully, and are sent to work to receive a hundredfold from one who is ready and willing and able to meet us today, give us what we need, not only today, but for eternity. For those who are able to hear the parable, it contains an unexpected surprise. The surprise is something turning in us. We're going along, minding our own business, living life, when all of a sudden Jesus tells a simple story that resonates with our heart in a new way and confronts us with the truth about the way things are in our life right now and amplifies in our heart and mind the inescapable need that we all have for a Savior. And at the same time, in the same moment, reveals this plumb bob, this, this line of righteousness. Jesus himself, who pays the righteous wage on our behalf. He pays the same amount for every person to meet our need. He satisfies our need with his own blood. He delivers us from the desperate realm of self-help 
to the peace that transcends understanding. What kind of transcendence do you need? What kind of transcendence do you want? Do you want the transcendence that goes from one level of striving to the next? Or the transcendence that goes from, from need and suffering and despair and want to a peace that makes absolutely no sense because we know we have a God who is trustworthy. What is going on in your life right now? Are you poor in spirit? Are you weary? Are you tired of carrying some burden? Are you exhausted by broken relationships? Have you been the victim of injustice? Do you feel rejected, undervalued, left out, overlooked? Have things not turned out as you had hoped or planned? Do you feel as though you have let God down and fallen out of favor and don't have the time or the energy to fix what is broken? Stop adding to the burden of necessity with the false hope of relative self-help. <laughs> Throw the stick away. Consider again the words of Psalm 145 that Steve read for us this morning. The Lord upholds all who are, are fallen, falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to him and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him and to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him and he also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. We have a God who has called us into his vineyard because he loves us. He wants to provide for us. He wants to meet our every need. Life may be hard. We may suffer much. We may lose everything, even our life. But we have a God who will not return what we have lost with self-help advice. We have a God who will return for our life a hundredfold and the inheritance of eternal life so that like Paul, we can stand here today in response to the question of what is going on in your life right now. Respond, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me because it is for your progress and joy and in the faith. 